What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 0 of The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Thomas Copeland. The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Preface. I fear that Mr. Sherlock Holmes may become like one of those popular tenors who, having outlived their time, are still tempted to make repeated farewell bows to their indulgent audiences. This must cease, and he must go the way of all flesh, material or imaginary. One likes to think that there is some fantastic limbo for the children of imagination, some strange impossible place where the bows of fielding may still make love to the bells of Richardson, where Scott's heroes still may strut, Dickens's delightful cockneys still raise a laugh, and Thackeray's worldlings continue to carry on their reprehensible careers. Perhaps in some humble corner of such a Valhalla, Sherlock and his Watson may for a time find a place, while some more astute sleuth, with some even less astute comrade, may fill the stage which they have vacated. His career has been a long one, though it is possible to exaggerate it, Decrepit gentlemen who approach me and declare that his adventures formed the reading of their boyhood do not meet the response from me which they seem to expect. One is not anxious to have one's personal dates handled so unkindly. As a matter of cold fact, Holmes made his debut in A Study in Scarlet and in The Sign of Four, two small booklets which appeared between 1887 and 1889. It was in 1891 that a scandal in Bohemia the first of the long series of short stories appeared in the Strand magazine. The public seemed appreciative and desirous of more, so that from that date, thirty-six years ago, they have been produced in a broken series which now contains no fewer than fifty-six stories, republished in The Adventures, The Memoirs, The Return, and His Last Bow, and there remain these twelve, published during the last few years which are here produced under the title of the case-book of Sherlock Holmes. He began his adventures in the very heart of the later Victorian era, carried it through the all-too-short reign of Edward, 
and has managed to hold his own little niche even in these feverish days thus it would be true to say that those who first read of him as young men have lived to see their own grown-up children following the same adventures in the same magazine it is a striking example of the patience and loyalty of the british public i had fully determined at the conclusion of the memoirs to bring holmes to an end as i felt that my literary energy should not be directed too much into one channel that pale clear-cut face and loose-limbed figure were taking up an undue share of my imagination i did the deed but fortunately no coroner had pronounced upon the remains and so after a long interval it was not difficult for me to respond to the flattering demand and to explain my rash act away i have never regretted it for i have not in actual practice found that these lighter sketches have prevented me from exploring and finding my limitations in such varied branches of literature as history poetry historical novels psychic research and the drama had holmes never existed i could not have done more though he may perhaps have stood a little in the way of the recognition of my more serious literary work and so reader farewell to sherlock holmes i thank you for your past constancy and can but hope that some return has been made in the shape of that distraction from the worries of life and stimulating change of thought which can only be found in the fairy kingdom of romance arthur conan doyle end of section zero Section 1 of the Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story 1. The Adventure of the Illustrious Client. It can't hurt now, was Mr. Sherlock Holmes's comment, when for the tenth time in as many years I asked his leave to reveal the following narrative. So it was that at last I obtained permission to put on record what was in some ways the supreme moment of my friend's career both holmes and i had a weakness for the turkish bath it was over a smoke in the pleasant lassitude of the drying-room that i have found him less reticent and more human than anywhere else on the upper floor of the northumberland avenue establishment there is an isolated corner where two couches lie side by side and it was on these that we lay upon september third nineteen o two the day when my narrative begins i had asked him whether anything was stirring and for answer he had shot his long thin nervous arm out of the sheets which enveloped him and had drawn an envelope from the inside pocket of the coat which hung beside him it may be some fussy self-important fool but it may be a matter of life and death said he as he handed me the note i know no more than this message tells me it was from the carlton club and dated the evening before this is what i read sir james damory presents his compliments to mr sherlock holmes and will call upon him at four-thirty to-morrow sir james begs to say that the matter upon which he desires to consult mr holmes is very delicate and also very important he trusts therefore that mr holmes will make every effort to grant this interview and that he will confirm it over the telephone to the carlton club i need not say that i have confirmed it watson said holmes as i returned the paper do you know anything of this man damory only that his name is a household word in society well i can tell you a little more than that 
he has rather a reputation for arranging delicate matters which are to be kept out of the papers you may remember his negotiations with sir george lewis over the hammerford will case he is a man of the world with a natural turn for diplomacy i am bound therefore to hope that it is not a false scent and that he has some real need for our assistance our well if you will be so good watson i shall be honoured then you have the hour four thirty until then we can put the matter out of our heads i was living in my own rooms in queen anne street at the time but i was round at baker street before the time named sharp to the half hour colonel sir james damory was announced it is hardly necessary to describe him for many will remember that large bluff honest personality that broad clean-shaven face above all that pleasant mellow voice frankness shone from his grey irish eyes and good humour played round his mobile smiling lips his loosened top hat his dark frock coat indeed every detail from the pearl pin in the black satin cravat to the lavender spats over the varnished shoes spoke of the meticulous care in dress for which he was famous the big masterful aristocrat dominated the little room of course i was prepared to find dr watson he remarked with a courteous bow his collaboration may be very necessary for we are dealing on this occasion mr holmes with a man to whom violence is familiar and who will literally stick at nothing i should say that there is no more dangerous man in europe i have had several opponents to whom that flattering term has been applied said holmes with a smile don't you smoke then you will excuse me if i light my pipe if your man is more dangerous than the late professor moriarty or than the living colonel sebastian moran then he is indeed worth meeting may i ask his name have you ever heard of baron gruner you mean the austrian murderer colonel damory threw up his kid-gloved hands with a laugh there is no getting past you mr holmes wonderful so you have already sized him up as a murderer it is my business to follow the details of continental crime who could possibly have read what happened at prague and have any doubts as to the man's guilt it was a purely technical legal point and the suspicious death of a witness that saved him i am as sure that he killed his wife when the so-called accident happened in the splugen pass as if i had seen him do it i knew also that he had come to england and had a presentiment that sooner or later he would find me some work to do well what has baron gruner been up to i presume it is not this old tragedy which has come up again no it is more serious than that to revenge crime is important but to prevent it is more so it is a terrible thing mr holmes to see a dreadful event an atrocious situation preparing itself before your eyes to clearly understand whither it will lead and yet to be utterly unable to avert it can a human being be placed in a more trying position perhaps not then you will sympathize with the client in whose interests i am acting i did not understand that you were merely an intermediary who is the principal mr holmes i must beg you not to press that question it is important that i should be able to assure him that his honoured name has been in no way dragged into the matter his motives are to the last degree honourable and chivalrous but he prefers to remain unknown i need not say that your fees will be assured and that you will be given a perfectly free hand surely the actual name of your client is immaterial i am sorry said holmes 
i am accustomed to have mystery at one end of my cases but to have it at both ends is too confusing i fear sir james that i must decline to act our visitor was greatly disturbed his large sensitive face was darkened with emotion and disappointment you hardly realize the effect of your own action mr holmes said he you place me in a most serious dilemma for i am perfectly certain that you would be proud to take over the case if i could give you the facts and yet a promise forbids me from revealing them all may i at least lay all that i can before you by all means so long as it is understood that i commit myself to nothing that is understood in the first place you have no doubt heard of general de merville de merville of khyber fame yes i have heard of him he has a daughter violet de merville young rich beautiful accomplished a wonder woman in every way it is this daughter this lovely innocent girl whom we are endeavouring to save from the clutches of a fiend baron gruner has some hold over her then the strongest of all holds where a woman is concerned the hold of love the fellow is as you may have heard extraordinarily handsome with the most fascinating manner a gentle voice and that air of romance and mystery which means so much to a woman he is said to have the whole sex at his mercy and to have made ample use of the fact but how came such a man to meet a lady of the standing of miss violet de merville it was on a mediterranean yachting voyage the company though select paid their own passages no doubt the promoters hardly realized the baron's true character until it was too late the villain attached himself to the lady and with such effect that he has completely and absolutely won her heart to say that she loves him hardly expresses it she dotes upon him she is obsessed by him outside of him there is nothing on earth she will not hear one word against him everything has been done to cure her of her madness but in vain to sum up she proposes to marry him next month as she is of age and has a will of iron it is hard to know how to prevent her does she know about the austrian episode the cunning devil has told her every unsavoury public scandal of his past life but always in such a way as to make himself out to be an innocent martyr she absolutely accepts his version and will listen to no other dear me but surely you have inadvertently let out the name of your client it is no doubt general de merville our visitor fidgeted in his chair i could deceive you by saying so mr holmes but it would not be true de merville is a broken man the strong soldier has been utterly demoralized by this incident he has lost the nerve which never failed him on the battlefield and has become a weak doddering old man utterly incapable of contending with a brilliant forceful rascal like this austrian my client however is an old friend one who has known the general intimately for many years and taken a paternal interest in this young girl since she wore short frocks he cannot see this tragedy consummated without some attempt to stop it there is nothing in which scotland guard can act it was his own suggestion that you should be called in but it was as i have said on the express stipulation that he should not be personally involved in the matter i have no doubt mr holmes with your great powers you could easily trace my client back through me but i must ask you 
as a point of honour to refrain from doing so, and not to break in upon his incognito. Holmes gave a whimsical smile. "'I think I may safely promise that,' said he. "'I may add that your problem interests me, and that I shall be prepared to look into it. How shall I keep in touch with you? The Carlton Club will find me, but in case of emergency there is a private telephone call, XX31. Holmes noted it down and sat, still smiling, with the open memorandum book upon his knee. The Baron's present address, please. Vernon Lodge, near Kingston. It is a large house. He has been fortunate in some rather shady speculations, and is a rich man, which naturally makes him a more dangerous antagonist. Is he at home at present? Yes. Apart from what you have told me, can you give me any further information about the man? He has expensive tastes. He is a horse-fancier. For a short time he played polo at Hurlingham, but then this Prague affair got noised about and he had to leave. He collects books and pictures. He is a man with a considerable artistic side to his nature. He is, I believe, a recognized authority upon Chinese pottery, and has written a book upon the subject. A complex mind, said Holmes. All great criminals have that. My old friend Charlie Peace was a violin virtuoso. Wainwright was no mean artist. I could quote many more. Well, Sir James, you will inform your client that I am turning my mind upon Baron Grumer. I can say no more. I have some sources of information of my own, and dare say we may find some means of opening matter up. When our visitor had left us, Holmes sat so long in deep thought that it seemed to me that he had forgotten my presence. At last, however, he came briskly back to earth. "'Well, Watson, any views?' he asked. "'I should think you had better see the young lady herself.' "'My dear Watson, if her poor old broken father cannot move her, how shall I, a stranger, prevail? And yet there is something in the suggestion, if all else fails. But I think we must begin from a different angle. I rather fancy that Shinwell Johnson might be a help. I have not had occasion to mention Shinwell Johnson in these memoirs, because I have seldom drawn my cases from the latter phases of my friend's career. During the first years of the century, he became a valuable assistant. Johnson, I grieve to say, made his name first as a very dangerous villain, and served two terms at Parkhurst. Finally he repented and allied himself to Holmes, acting as his agent in the huge criminal underworld of London, and obtaining information which often proved to be of vital importance. Had Johnson been a narc of the police, he would soon have been exposed, but as he dealt with cases which never came directly into the courts, his activities were never realized by his companions. With the glamour of his two convictions upon him, he had the entree of every nightclub, doss-house, and gambling den in the town, and his quick observation and active brain made him an ideal agent for gaining information. It was to him that Sherlock Holmes now proposed to turn. It was not possible for me to follow the immediate steps taken by my friend, for I had some pressing professional business of my own, but I met him by appointment that evening at Simpson's, where, sitting at a small table in the front window, and looking down at the rushing stream of life in the Strand, he told me something of what had passed. "'Johnson is on the prowl,' said he. 
he may pick up some garbage in the darker recesses of the underworld for it is down there amid the black roots of crime that we must hunt for this man's secrets but if the lady will not accept what is already known why should any fresh discovery of yours turn her from her purpose who knows watson woman's heart and mind are insoluble puzzles to the male murder might be condoned or explained and yet some smaller offence might rankle baron gruner remarked to me he remarked to you oh to be sure i had not told you of my plans well watson i love to come to close grips with my man i like to meet him eye to eye and read for myself the stuff that he is made of when i had given johnson his instructions i took a cab out to kingston and found the baron in a most affable mood did he recognize you there was no difficulty about that for i simply sent in my card he is an excellent antagonist cool as ice silky voiced and soothing as one of your fashionable consultants and poisonous as a cobra he has breed in him a real aristocrat of crime with a superficial suggestion of afternoon tea and all the cruelty of the grave behind it yes i am glad to have had my attention called to baron adalbert gruner you say he was affable a purring cat who thinks he sees prospective mice some people's affability is more deadly than the violence of coarser souls his greeting was characteristic i rather thought i should see you sooner or later mr holmes said he you have been engaged no doubt by general de merville to endeavour to stop my marriage with his daughter violet that is so is it not i acquiesced my dear man said he you will only ruin your own well-deserved reputation it is not a case in which you can possibly succeed you will have barren work to say nothing of incurring some danger let me very strongly advise you to draw off at once it is curious i answered but that was the very advice which i had intended to give you i have a respect for your brains baron and the little which i have seen of your personality has not lessened it let me put it to you as man to man no one wants to rake up your past and make you unduly uncomfortable it is over and you are now in smooth waters but if you persist in this marriage you will raise up a swarm of powerful enemies who will never leave you alone until they have made england too hot to hold you is the game worth it surely you would be wiser if you left the lady alone it would not be pleasant for you if these facts of your past were brought to her notice the baron has little waxed tips of hair under his nose like the short antennae of an insect these quivered with amusement as he listened and he finally broke into a gentle chuckle <laughs> excuse my amusement mr holmes said he but it is really funny to see you trying to play a hand with no cards in it i don't think any one could do it better but it is rather pathetic all the same not a colour card there mr holmes nothing but the smallest of the small so you think so i know let me make the thing clear to you for my own hand is so strong that i can afford to show it i have been fortunate enough to win the entire affection of this lady this was given to me in spite of the fact that i told her very clearly of all the unhappy incidents in my past life 
i also told her that certain wicked and designing persons i hope you recognize yourself would come to her and tell her these things and i warned her how to treat them you have heard of post-hypnotic suggestion mr holmes well you will see how it works for a man of personality can use hypnotism without any vulgar passes or tomfoolery so she is ready for you and i have no doubt would give you an appointment for she is quite amenable to her father's will save only in the one little matter well watson there seemed to be no more to say so i took my leave with as much cold dignity as i could summon but as i had my hand on the door-handle he stopped me by the way mr holmes said he did you know lebrun the french agent yes said i do you know what befell him i heard that he was beaten by some apaches in the montmartre district and crippled for life quite true mr holmes by a curious coincidence he had been inquiring into my affairs only a week before don't do it mr holmes it's not a lucky thing to do several have found that out my last word to you is go your own way and let me go mine good-bye so there you are watson you are up to date now the fellow seems dangerous mighty dangerous i disregard the blusterer but this is the sort of man who says rather less than he means must you interfere does it really matter if he marries the girl considering that he undoubtedly murdered his last wife i should say it mattered very much besides the client well well we need not discuss that when you have finished your coffee you had best come home with me for the blithe shinwell will be there with his report we found him sure enough a huge coarse red-faced scorbutic man with a pair of vivid black eyes which were the only external sign of the very cunning mind within it seems that he had dived down to what was peculiarly his kingdom and beside him on the settee was a brand which he had brought up in the shape of a slim flame-like young woman with a pale intense face youthful and yet so worn with sin and sorrow that one read the terrible years which had left their leprous mark upon her this is miss kitty winter said shinwell johnson waving his fat hand as an introduction what she don't know well there she'll speak for herself put my hand right on her mr holmes within an hour of your message i'm easy to find said the young woman hail london gets me every time same address for porky shinwell we're old mates porky you and i but gripes there is another who ought to be down in a lower hell than we if there was any justice in the world that is the man you are after mr holmes holmes smiled i gather we have your good wishes miss winter if i can help to put him where he belongs i'm yours to the rattle said our visitor with fierce energy there was an intensity of hatred in her white set face and her blazing eyes such as woman seldom and man never can attain you needn't go into my past mr holmes that's neither here nor there but what i am adelbert gruner made me if i could pull him down she clutched frantically with her hands into the air oh if i could only pull him into the pit where he has pushed so many you know how the matter stands porky shinwell has been telling me he's after some other poor fool and wants to marry her this time you want to stop it well 
you surely know enough about this devil to prevent any decent girl in her senses wanting to be in the same parish with him she is not in her senses she is madly in love she has been told all about him she cares nothing told about the murder yes my lord she must have a nerve she puts them all down as slanders couldn't you lay proofs before her silly eyes well can you help us do so ain't i a proof myself if i stood before her and told her how he used me would you do this would i would i not well it might be worth trying but he has told her most of his sins and had pardon from her and i understand she will not reopen the question i'll lay he didn't tell her all said miss winter i caught a glimpse of one or two murders besides the one that made such a fuss he would speak of someone in his velvet way and then look at me with a steady eye and say he died within a month it wasn't hot air either but i took little notice you see i loved him myself at that time whatever he did went with me same as with this poor fool there was just one thing that shook me yes by gripes if it had not been for his poisonous lying tongue that explains and soothes i'd have left him that very night it's a book he has a brown leather book with a lock and his arms in gold on the outside i think he was a bit drunk that night or he would not have shown it to me what was it then i tell you mr holmes this man collects women and takes a pride in his collection as some men collect moths or butterflies he had it all in that book snapshot photographs names details everything about them it was a beastly book a book no man even if he had come from the gutter could have put together but it was adelbert gruner's book all the same souls i have ruined he could have put that on the outside if he had been so minded however that's neither here nor there for the book would not serve you and if it would you can't get it where is it how can i tell where it is now it's more than a year since i left him i know where he kept it then he's a precise tidy cat of a man in many of his ways so maybe it is still in the pigeonhole of the old bureau in the inner study do you know his house i've been in the study said holmes have you though you haven't been slow on the job if you only started this morning maybe dear adelbert has met his match this time the outer study is the one with the chinese crockery in it big glass covered between the windows then behind his desk is the door that leads to the inner study a small room where he keeps papers and things is he not afraid of burglars adelbert is no coward his worst enemy couldn't say that of him he can look after himself there's a burglar alarm at night besides what is there for a burglar unless they got away with all this fancy crockery no good said chinwell johnson with the decided voice of the expert no fence wants stuff of that sort that you can neither melt nor sell quite so said holmes well now miss winter if you would call here to-morrow evening at five i would consider in the meanwhile whether your suggestion of seeing this lady personally may not be arranged i am exceedingly obliged to you for your cooperation i need not say that my clients will consider liberally none of that mr holmes cried the young woman i am not out for money let me see this man in the mud and i've got all i work for in the mud with my foot on his cursed face 
that's my price. I am with you tomorrow or any other day, so long as you are on his track. Porky here can tell you always where to find me. I did not see Holmes again until the following evening, when we dined once more at our Strand restaurant. He shrugged his shoulders when I asked him what luck he had had in his interview. Then he told the story, which I would repeat in this way. His hard, dry statement needs some little editing to soften it into the terms of real life. "'There was no difficulty at all about the appointment,' said Holmes, "'for the girl glories in showing abject filial obedience in all secondary things "'in an attempt to atone for her flagrant breach of it in her engagement. "'The general phoned that all was ready, "'and the fiery Miss W. turned up according to schedule, "'so that at half-past five a cab deposited us outside 104 Berkeley Square, "'where the old soldier resides.' one of those awful grey London castles which would make a church seem frivolous, a footman showed us into a great yellow-curtained drawing-room, and there was the lady awaiting us, demure, pale, self-contained, as inflexible and remote as a snow image on a mountain. I don't quite know how to make her clear to you, Watson. Perhaps you may meet her before we are through, and you can use your own gift of words. She is beautiful but with the ethereal other-world beauty of some fanatic whose thoughts are set on high. I have seen such faces in the pictures of the old masters of the Middle Ages. How a beast-man could have laid his vile paws upon such a being over the beyond I cannot imagine. You may have noticed how extremes call to each other, the spiritual to the animal, the caveman to the angel. You never saw a worse case than this. She knew what we had come for, of course. That villain had lost no time in poisoning her mind against us. Miss Winter's advent rather amazed her, I think, but she waved us into our respective chairs like a reverend abbess, receiving two rather leprous mendicants. If your head is inclined to swell, my dear Watson, take a course of Miss Violet de Merville. Well, sir, said she, in a voice like the wind from an iceberg, your name is familiar to me. You have called, as I understand, to malign my fiancée, Baron Gruner. It is only by my father's request that I see you at all, and I warn you in advance that anything you can say could not possibly have the slightest effect upon my mind. I was sorry for her, Watson. I thought of her for the moment, as I would have thought of a daughter of my own. I am not often eloquent. I use my head, not my heart but I really did plead with her with all the warmth of words that I could find in my nature. I pictured to her the awful position of the woman who only wakes to a man's character after she is his wife, a woman who has to submit to be caressed by bloody hands and lecherous lips. I spared her nothing, the shame, the fear, the agony, the hopelessness of it all. All my hot words could not bring one tinge of colour to those ivory cheeks, or one gleam of emotion to those abstracted eyes. I thought of what the rascal had said about a post-hypnotic influence. One could really believe that she was living above the earth in some ecstatic dream. Yet there was nothing indefinite in her replies. "'I have listened to you with patience, Mr. Holmes,' said she. "'The effect upon my mind is exactly as predicted. I am aware that Adelbert, that my fiancé, has had a stormy life in which he has incurred bitter hatreds and most unjust aspersions. You are only the last of a series who have brought their slanders before me. 
possibly you mean well though i learn that you are a paid agent who would have been equally willing to act for the baron as against him but in any case i wish you to understand once for all that i love him and that he loves me and that the opinion of all the world is no more to me than the twitter of those birds outside the window if his noble nature has ever for an instant fallen it may be that i have been specially sent to raise it to its true and lofty level i am not clear here she turned her eyes upon my companion who this young lady may be i was about to answer when the girl broke in like a whirlwind if ever you saw flame and ice face to face it was those two women i'll tell you who i am she cried springing out of her chair her mouth all twisted with passion i am his last mistress i am one of a hundred that he has tempted and used and ruined and thrown into the refuse heap as he will you also your refuse heap is more likely to be a grave and maybe that's the best i tell you you foolish woman if you marry this man he'll be the death of you it may be a broken heart or it may be a broken neck but he'll have you one way or the other it's not out of love for you i'm speaking i don't care a tinker's curse whether you live or die it's out of hate for him and to spite him and to get back on him for what he did to me but it's all the same and you needn't look at me like that my fine lady for you may be lower than i am before you are through with it i should prefer not to discuss such matters said mr merville coldly let me say once for all that i am aware of three passages in my fiance's life in which he became entangled with designing women and that i am assured of his hearty repentance for any evil that he may have done three passages screamed my companion you fool you unutterable fool mr holmes i beg that you will bring this interview to an end said the icy voice i have obeyed my father's wish in seeing you but i am not compelled to listen to the ravings of this person with an oath miss winter darted forward and if i had not caught her wrist she would have clutched this maddening woman by the hair i dragged her towards the door and was lucky to get her back into the cab without a public scene for she was beside herself with rage in a cold way i felt pretty furious myself watson for there was something indescribably annoying in the calm aloofness and supreme self-complacence of the woman whom we were trying to save so now once again you know exactly how we stand and it is clear that i must plan some fresh opening move for this gambit won't work i'll keep in touch with you watson for it is more than likely that you will have your part to play though it is just possible that the next move may lie with them rather than with us and it did their blow fell or his blow rather for never could i believe that the lady was privy to it i think i could show you the very paving stone upon which i stood when my eyes fell upon the placard and a pang of horror passed through my very soul it was between the grand hotel and charing cross station where a one-legged newsvendor displayed his evening papers the date was just two days after the last conversation there black upon yellow was the terrible news sheet murderous attack upon sherlock holmes i think i stood stunned for some moments then i have a confused recollection of snatching at a paper of the remonstrance of the man whom i had not paid and finally of standing in the doorway of a chemist's shop while i turned up the fateful paragraph 
This is how it ran. We learn with regret that Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the well-known private detective, was the victim this morning of a murderous assault which has left him in a precarious position. There are no exact details to hand, but the event seems to have occurred about twelve o'clock in Regent Street, outside the Café Royal. The attack was made by two men armed with sticks, and Mr. Holmes was beaten about the head and body, receiving injuries which the doctors describe as most serious. He was carried to Charing Cross Hospital, and afterwards insisted upon being taken to his rooms in Baker Street. The miscreants who attacked him appeared to have been respectably dressed men who escaped from the bystanders by passing through the Café Royal and out into Glasshouse Street behind it. No doubt they belonged to that criminal fraternity which has so often had occasion to bewail the activity and ingenuity of the injured man. I need not say that my eyes had hardly glanced over the paragraph before I had sprung into a hansom and was on my way to Baker Street. I found Sir Leslie Oakshot, the famous surgeon, in the hall, and his brougham waiting at the curb. No immediate danger, was his report. Two lacerated scalp wounds and some considerable bruises. Several stitches have been necessary. Morphine has been injected, and quiet is essential. But an interview of a few minutes would not be absolutely forbidden. With this permission I stole into the darkened room. The sufferer was wide awake, and I heard my name in a hoarse whisper. The blind was three-quarters down, but one ray of sunlight slanted through and struck the bandaged head of the injured man. A crimson patch had soaked through the white linen compress. I sat beside him and bent my head. "'All right, Watson, don't look so scared,' he muttered in a very weak voice. "'It's not as bad as it seems. Thank God for that. I'm a bit of a single-stick expert, as you know. I took most of them on my guard. It was the second man that was too much for me. What can I do, Holmes? Of course it was that damned fellow who set them on. I'll go and thrash the hide off him if you give the word. Good old Watson. No, we can do nothing there unless the police lay their hands on the men. But their getaway had been well prepared. We may be sure of that. Wait a little. I have my plans. The first thing is to exaggerate my injuries. They'll come to you for news. Put it on thick, Watson. Lucky if I live the week out. Concussion, delirium, what you like. You can't overdo it. But Sir Leslie Oakshot? Oh, he's all right. He shall see the worst side of me. I'll look after that. Anything else? Yes. Tell Shinwell Johnson to get that girl out of the way. Those beauties will be after her now. They know, of course, that she was with me in the case. If they dared to do me in, it is not likely they will neglect her. That is urgent. Do it tonight. I'll go now. Anything more? Put my pipe on the table and the tobacco slipper. Right. Come in each morning, and we will plan our campaign. I arranged with Johnson that evening to take Miss Winter to a quiet suburb and see that she lay low until the danger was past. For six days the public were under the impression that Holmes was at the door of death. The bulletins were very grave, and there were sinister paragraphs in the papers. My continual visits assured me that it was not so bad as that. His wiry constitution and his determined will were working wonders. He was recovering fast. 
and I had suspicions at times that he was really finding himself faster than he pretended, even to me. There was a curious secretive streak in the man which led to many dramatic effects, but left even his closest friend guessing as to what his exact plans might be. He pushed to an extreme the axiom that the only safe plotter was he who plotted alone. I was nearer to him than anyone else, and yet I was always conscious of the gap between. On the seventh day the stitches were taken out, in spite of which there was a report of erysipelas in the evening papers. The same evening papers had an announcement which I was bound, sick or well, to carry to my friend. It was simply that among the passengers on the Cunar boat Ruritania, starting from Liverpool on Friday, was the Baron Adelbert Gruner, who had some important financial business to settle in the States before his impending wedding to Miss Violet de Merville, only daughter of etc., etc. Holmes listened to the news with a cold, concentrated look upon his pale face, which told me that it hit him hard. "'Friday!' he cried. "'Only three clear days. I believe the rascal wants to put himself out of danger's way. But he won't, Watson. By the Lord Harry, he won't. Now, Watson, I want you to do something for me. I am here to be used, Holmes. Well, then, spend the next twenty-four hours in an intensive study of Chinese pottery. He gave no explanations, and I asked for none. By long experience, I had learned the wisdom of obedience. But when I had left his room, I walked down Baker Street, revolving in my head how on earth I was to carry out so strange an order. Finally, I drove to the London Library in St. James's Square, put the matter to my friend Lomax, the sub-librarian, and departed to my rooms with a goodly volume under my arm. It is said that the barrister who crams up a case with such care that he can examine an expert witness upon the Monday has forgotten all his forced knowledge before the Saturday. Certainly I should not like now to pose as an authority upon ceramics, and yet all that evening, and all that night with a short interval for rest, and all next morning, I was sucking in knowledge and committing names to memory. There I learned of the hallmarks of the great artist-decorators, of the mystery of cyclical dates, the marks of the Hung Wu and the beauties of the Yung Lo, the writings of Tang Ying, and the glories of the primitive period of the Sung and the Yuan. I was charged with all this information when I called upon Holmes next evening. He was out of bed now, though he would not have guessed it from the published reports, and he sat with his much-bandaged head resting upon his hand in the depth of his favourite armchair. "'Why, Holmes,' I said, "'if one believed the papers, you are dying.' "'That,' said he, "'is the very impression which I intended to convey. "'And now, Watson, have you learned your lessons?' At least I have tried to. Good. You could keep up an intelligent conversation on the subject? I believe I could. Then hand me that little box from the mantelpiece. He opened the lid and took out a small object, most carefully wrapped in some fine eastern silk. This he unfolded and disclosed a delicate little saucer of the most beautiful deep blue color. It needs careful handling, Watson. This is the real eggshell pottery of the Ming dynasty. No finer piece ever passed through Christie's. A complete set of this would be worth a king's ransom. In fact, it is doubtful if there is a complete set outside the imperial palace of Peking. The sight of this would drive a real connoisseur wild. 
what am i to do with it holmes handed me a card upon which was printed dr hill barton three six nine half moon street that is your name for the evening watson you will call upon baron druner i know something of his habits and at half-past eight he would probably be disengaged a note will tell him in advance that you are about to call and you will say that you are bringing him a specimen of an absolutely unique set of ming china you may as well be a medical man since that is a part which you can play without duplicity you are a collector this set has come your way you have heard of the baron's interest in the subject and you are not averse to selling at a price what price well asked watson you would certainly fall down badly if you did not know the value of your own wares this saucer was got for me by sir james and comes i understand from the collection of his client you will not exaggerate if you say that it could hardly be matched in the world i could perhaps suggest that the set should be valued by an expert excellent watson you scintillate to-day suggest christie or sotheby your delicacy prevents your putting a price for yourself but if he won't see me oh yes he will see you he has the collection mania in its most acute form and especially on this subject on which he is an acknowledged authority sit down watson and i will dictate the letter no answer needed you will merely say that you are coming and why it was an admirable document short courteous and stimulating to the curiosity of the connoisseur a district messenger was duly dispatched with it on the same evening with the precious saucer in my hand and the card of dr hill barton in my pocket i set off on my own adventure the beautiful house and grounds indicated that baron gruner was as sir james had said a man of considerable wealth a long winding drive with banks of rare shrubs on either side opened out into a great gravelled square adorned with statues the place had been built by a south african gold king in the days of the great boom and the long low house with the turrets at the corners though an architectural nightmare was imposing in its size and solidity a butler who would have adorned a bench of bishops showed me in and handed me over to a plush-clad footman who ushered me into the baron's presence he was standing at the open front of a great case which stood between the windows and which contained part of his chinese collection he turned as i entered with a small brown vase in his hand pray sit down doctor said he i was looking over my own treasures and wondering whether i could really afford to add to them this little tong specimen which dates from the seventh century would probably interest you i am sure you never saw finer workmanship or a richer glaze have you the ming saucer with you of which you spoke i carefully unpacked it and handed it to him he seated himself at his desk pulled over the lamp for it was growing dark and set himself to examine it as he did so the yellow light beat upon his own features and i was able to study them at my ease he was certainly a remarkably handsome man his european reputation for beauty was fully deserved in figure he was not more than of middle size but was built upon graceful and active lines his face was swarthy almost oriental with large dark languorous eyes which might easily hold an irresistible fascination for women his hair and moustache were raven black the latter short pointed and carefully waxed 
His features were regular and pleasing, save only his straight, thin-lipped mouth. If ever I saw a murderer's mouth, it was there, a cruel, hard gash in the face, compressed, inexorable, and terrible. He was ill-advised to train his moustache away from it, for it was nature's danger signal set as a warning to his victims. His voice was engaging and his manners perfect. In age I should have put him at a little over thirty, though his record afterwards showed that he was forty-two. "'Very fine, very fine indeed,' he said at last. "'And you say you have a set of six to correspond? "'What puzzles me is that I should not have heard of such magnificent specimens. "'I only know of one in England to match this, "'and it is certainly not likely to be in the market. "'Would it be indiscreet if I were to ask you, Dr. Hilvarton, "'how you obtained this?' "'Does it really matter?' I asked with as careless an air as I could muster. You can see that the piece is genuine, and as to the value, I am content to take an expert's valuation. Very mysterious, said he, with a quick suspicious flash of his dark eyes. In dealing with objects of such value, one naturally wishes to know all about the transaction. That the piece is genuine is certain. I have no doubts at all about that, but suppose... I am bound to take every possibility into account that it should prove afterwards that you had no right to sell. I would guarantee you against any claim of that sort. That, of course, would open up the question as to what your guarantee was worth. My bankers would answer that. Quite so. And yet the whole transaction strikes me as rather unusual. You can do business or not, said I, with indifference, I have given you the first offers. I understood that you were a connoisseur, and I shall have no difficulty in other quarters. Who told you I was a connoisseur? I was aware that you had written a book upon the subject. Have you read the book? No. Dear me, this becomes more and more difficult for me to understand. You are a connoisseur and collector with a very valuable piece in your collection, and yet you have never troubled to consult the one book which would have told you of the real meaning and value of what you held. How do you explain that? I am a very busy man. I am a doctor in practice. That is no answer. If a man has a hobby, he follows it up, whatever his other pursuits may be. You said in your note that you were a connoisseur. So I am. Might I ask you a few questions to test you? I am obliged to tell you, Doctor, if you are indeed a doctor, that the incident becomes more and more suspicious. I would ask you, what do you know of the Emperor Shomu, and how do you associate him with the Shoso Inn near Nara? Jimmy, does that puzzle you? Tell me a little about the Northern Way dynasty and its place in the history of ceramics. I sprang from my chair in simulated anger. This is intolerable, sir, said I. I came here to do you a favor and not to be examined as if I were a schoolboy. My knowledge on these subjects may be second only to your own, but I certainly shall not answer questions which have been put in so offensive a way. He looked at me steadily. The languor had gone from his eyes. They suddenly glared. There was a gleam of teeth from between those cruel lips. What is the game? 
you are here as a spy you are an emissary of holmes this is a trick that you are playing upon me the fellow is dying i hear so he sends his tools to keep watch upon me you've made your way in here without leave and by god you may find it harder to get out than to get in he had sprung to his feet and i stepped back bracing myself for an attack for the man was beside himself with rage he may have suspected me from the first certainly this cross-examination had shown him the truth but it was clear that i could not hope to deceive him he dived his hand into a side drawer and rummaged furiously then something struck upon his ear for he stood listening intently ah he cried ah and dashed into the room behind him two steps took me to the open door and my mind will ever carry a clear picture of the scene within the window leading out to the garden was wide open beside it looking like some terrible ghost his head girt with bloody bandages his face drawn and white stood sherlock holmes the next instant he was through the gap and i heard the crash of his body among the laurel bushes outside with a howl of rage the master of the house rushed after him to the open window and then it was done in an instant and yet i clearly saw it an arm a woman's arm shot out from among the leaves at the same instant the baron uttered a horrible cry a yell which will always ring in my memory he clapped his two hands to his face and rushed round the room beating his head horribly against the walls then he fell upon the carpet rolling and writhing while scream after scream resounded through the house water for god's sake water was his cry i seized a carafe from a side table and rushed to his aid at the same moment the butler and several footmen ran in from the hall i remember that one of them fainted as i knelt by the injured man and turned that awful face to the light of the lamp the vitriol was eating into it everywhere and dripping from the ears and the chin one eye was already white and glazed the other was red and inflamed the features which i had admired a few minutes before were now like some beautiful painting over which the artist has passed a wet and foul sponge they were blurred discoloured inhuman terrible in a few words i explained exactly what had occurred so far as the vitriol attack was concerned some had climbed through the window and others had rushed out on to the lawn but it was dark and it had begun to rain between his screams the victim raged and raved against the avenger it was that hellcat kitty winter he cried oh the she-devil she shall pay for it she shall pay oh god in heaven this pain is more than i can bear i bathed his face in oil put cotton wadding on the raw surfaces and administered a hypodermic of morphia all suspicion of me had passed from his mind in the presence of this shock and he clung to my hands as if i might have the power even yet to clear those dead fish eyes which gazed up at me i could have wept over the ruin had i not remembered very clearly the vile life which had led up to so hideous a change it was loathsome to feel the pawing of his burning hands and i was relieved when his family surgeon closely followed by a specialist came to relieve me of my charge an inspector of police had also arrived and to him i handed my real card it would have been useless as well as foolish to do otherwise for i was nearly as well known by sight at the yard as holmes himself then i left that house of gloom and terror within an hour i was at baker street 
Holmes was seated in his familiar chair, looking very pale and exhausted. Apart from his injuries, even his iron nerves had been shocked by the events of the evening, and he listened with horror to my account of the Baron's transformation. "'The wages of sin, Watson, the wages of sin,' said he. "'Sooner or later it will always come. "'God knows there was sin enough,' he added, "'taking up a brown volume from the table. "'Here is the book the woman talked of. "'If this will not break off the marriage, nothing ever could. "'But it will, Watson, it must. "'No self-respecting woman could stand it. "'It is his love diary, or his lust diary, call it what you will.' The moment the woman told us of it, I realized what a tremendous weapon was there, if we could but lay our hands on it. I said nothing at the time to indicate my thoughts, for this woman might have given it away, but I brooded over it. Then this assault upon me gave me the chance of letting the baron think that no precautions need be taken against me. That was all to the good. I would have waited a little longer, but his visit to America forced my hand. He would never have left so compromising a document behind him. Therefore we had to act at once. Burglary at night is impossible. He takes precautions. But there was a chance in the evening, if I could only be sure that his attention was engaged. That was where you and your blue saucer came in. But I had to be sure of the position of the book, and I knew I had only a few minutes in which to act, for my time was limited by your knowledge of Chinese pottery. Therefore I gathered the girl up at the last moment. How could I guess what the little packet was that she carried so carefully under her cloak? I thought she had come altogether on my business, but it seems she had some of her own. He guessed I came from you. I feared he would. But you held him in play just long enough for me to get the book, though not long enough for an unobserved escape. Ah, Sir James, I am very glad you have come. Our courtly friend had appeared in answer to a previous summons. He listened with the deepest attention to Holmes's account of what had occurred. "'You have done wonders, wonders!' he cried, when he had heard the narrative. "'But if these injuries are as terrible as Dr. Watson describes, then surely our purpose of thwarting the marriage is sufficiently gained without the use of this horrible book.' Holmes shook his head. "'Women of the de Merville type do not act like that. She would love him the more as a disfigured martyr. No, no, it is his moral side, not his physical, which we have to destroy. That book will bring her back to earth, and I know nothing else that could. It is in his own writing. She cannot get past it. Sir James carried away both it and the precious saucer. As I was myself overdue, I went down with him into the street. A brougham was waiting for him. He sprang in, gave a hurried order to the cockaded coachman, and drove swiftly away. He flung his overcoat half out of the window to cover the armorial bearings upon the panel, but I had seen them in the glare of our fanlight nonetheless. I gasped with surprise. Then I turned back and ascended the stair to Holmes's room. "'I have found out who our client is!' I cried, bursting with my great news. "'Why, Holmes, it is—' "'It is a loyal friend and a chivalrous gentleman,' said Holmes, holding up a restraining hand. "'Let that now and forever be enough for us.' I do not know how the incriminating book was used. Sir James may have managed it, or it is more probable that so delicate a task was entrusted to the young lady's father. 
the effect, at any rate, was all that could be desired. Three days later appeared a paragraph in the morning post to say that the marriage between Baron Adelbert Gruner and Miss Violet de Merville would not take place. The same paper had the first police court hearing of the proceedings against Miss Kitty Winter on the grave charge of vitriol throwing. Such extenuating circumstances came out in the trial that the sentence, as will be remembered, was the lowest that was possible for such an offence. Sherlock Holmes was threatened with the prosecution for burglary, but when an object is good and a client is sufficiently illustrious, even the rigid British law becomes human and elastic. My friend has not yet stood in the dock. End of the Adventure of the Illustrious Client Section 2 of The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story 3 The Adventure of the Blanched Soldier. The ideas of my friend Watson though limited, are exceedingly pertinacious. For a long time he has worried me to write an experience of my own. Perhaps I have rather invited this persecution, since I have often had occasion to point out to him how superficial are his own accounts, and to accuse him of pandering to popular taste instead of confining himself rigidly to facts and figures. "'Try it yourself, Holmes,' he has retorted, and I am compelled to admit that, having taken my pen in my hand, I do begin to realize that the matter must be presented in such a way as may interest the reader. The following case can hardly fail to do so, as it is among the strangest happenings in my collection, though it chanced that Watson had no note of it in his collection. Speaking of my old friend and biographer, I would take this opportunity to remark that if I burden myself with a companion in my various little inquiries, it is not done out of sentiment or caprice, but it is that Watson has some remarkable characteristics of his own, to which in his modesty he has given small attention amid his exaggerated estimates of my own performances. A confederate who foresees your conclusions and course of action is always dangerous, but one to whom each development comes as a perpetual surprise, and to whom the future is always a closed book, is indeed an ideal helpmate. I find from my notebook that it was in January 1903, just after the conclusion of the Boer War, that I had my visit from Mr. James M. Dodd, a big, fresh, sunburned, upstanding Briton. The good Watson had at that time deserted me for a wife the only selfish action which I recall in our association. I was alone. It is my habit to sit with my back to the window, and to place my visitors in the opposite chair, where the light falls full upon them. Mr. James M. Dodd seemed somewhat at a loss how to begin the interview. I did not attempt to help him, for his silence gave me more time for observation. I have found it wise to impress clients with a sense of power, and so I gave him some of my conclusions. "'From South Africa, sir, I perceive.' "'Yes, sir,' he answered, with some surprise. "'Imperial yeomanry, I fancy.' "'Exactly.' "'Middlesex Corps, no doubt.' "'That is so, Mr. Holmes. You are a wizard.' I smiled at his bewildered expression. "'When a gentleman of virile appearance enters my room with such tan upon his face as an English son could never give,' and with his handkerchief in his sleeve instead of in his pocket, it is not difficult to place him. 
you wear a short beard which shows that you were not a regular you have the cut of a riding man as to middlesex your card has already shown me that you are a stockbroker from throgmorton street what other regiment would you join you see everything i see no more than you but i have trained myself to notice what i see however mr dodd it was not to discuss the science of observation that you called upon me this morning what has been happening at tuxbury old park mr holmes my dear sir there is no mystery your letter came with that heading and as you fixed this appointment in very pressing terms it was clear that something sudden and important had occurred yes indeed but the letter was written in the afternoon and a good deal has happened since then if colonel emsworth had not kicked me out kicked you out well that was what it amounted to he is a hard nail colonel emsworth the greatest martinet in the army in his day and it was a day of rough language too i couldn't have stuck the colonel if it had not been for godfrey's sake i lit my pipe and leaned back in my chair perhaps you will explain what you were talking about my client grinned mischievously i had got into the way of supposing that you knew everything without being told said he but i will give you the facts and i hope to god that you will be able to tell me what they mean i've been awake all night puzzling my brain and the more i think the more incredible does it become when i joined up in january nineteen o one just two years ago young godfrey emsworth had joined the same squadron he was colonel emsworth's only son emsworth the crimean v c and he had the fighting blood in him so it is no wonder he volunteered there was not a finer lad in the regiment we formed a friendship a sort of friendship which can only be made when one lives the same life and shares the same joys and sorrows he was my mate and that means a good deal in the army we took the rough and the smooth together for a year of hard fighting then he was hit with a bullet from an elephant gun in the action near diamond hill outside pretoria i got one letter from the hospital at cape town and one from southampton since then not a word not one word mr holmes for six months and more and he my closest pal well when the war was over and we all got back i wrote to his father and asked where godfrey was no answer i waited a bit and then i wrote again this time i had a reply short and gruff godfrey had gone on a voyage round the world and it was not likely that he would be back for a year that was all i wasn't satisfied mr holmes the whole thing seemed to me so damned unnatural he was a good lad and he would not drop a pal like that it was not like him then again i happened to know that he was heir to a lot of money and also that his father and he did not always hit it off too well the old man was sometimes a bully and young godfrey had too much spirit to stand it no i wasn't satisfied and i determined that i would get to the root of the matter it happened however that my own affairs needed a lot of straightening out after two years absence and so it is only this week that i have been able to take up godfrey's case again but since i have taken it up i mean to drop everything in order to see it through mr james m dodd appeared to be the sort of person whom it would be better to have as a friend than as an enemy his blue eyes were stern and his square jaw had set hard as he spoke well what have you done i asked my first move was to get down to his home tuxbury old park near bedford and to see for myself how the ground lay 
I wrote to the mother, therefore. I had had quite enough of the curmudgeon of her father, and I made a clean frontal attack. Godfrey was my chum. I had a great deal of interest, which I might tell her, of our common experiences. I should be in the neighbourhood. Would there be any objection, etc.? In reply, I had quite an amiable answer from her, and an offer to put me up for the night. That was what took me down on Monday. Tuxbury Old Hall is inaccessible, five miles from anywhere. There was no trap at the station, so I had to walk, carrying my suitcase, and it was nearly dark before I arrived. It is a great wandering house, standing in a considerable park. I should judge it was of all sorts of ages and styles, starting on a half-timbered Elizabethan foundation and ending in a Victorian portico. Inside it was all panelling and tapestry and half-effaced old pictures, a house of shadows and mystery. There was a butler, old Rafe, who seemed about the same age as the house, and there was his wife, who might have been older. She had been Godfrey's nurse, and I had heard him speak of her as second only to his mother in his affections, so I was drawn to her in spite of her queer appearance. The mother I liked also, a gentle little white mouse of a woman. It was only the colonel himself whom I barred. We had a bit of Barney right away, and I should have walked back to the station if I had not felt that it might be playing his game for me to do so. I was shown straight into his study, and there I found him, a huge bow-backed man with a smoky skin and a straggling grey beard, seated behind his littered desk. A red-veined nose jutted out like a vulture's beak, and two fierce grey eyes glared at me from under tufted brows. I could understand now why Godfrey seldom spoke of his father. "'Well, sir,' said he, in a rasping voice, "'I should be interested to know the real reasons for this visit.' I answered that I had explained them in my letter to his wife. "'Yes, yes, you said that you had known Godfrey in Africa. We have, of course, only your word for that.' i have his letters to me in my pocket kindly let me see them he glanced at the two which i handed him and then he tossed them back well what then he asked i was fond of your son godfrey sir many ties and memories united us is it not natural that i should wonder at his sudden silence and should wish to know what has become of him i have some recollection sir that i already corresponded with you and had told you what had become of him he has gone upon a voyage round the world. His health was in a poor way after his African experiences, and both his mother and I were of opinion that complete rest and change were needed. Kindly pass that explanation on to any other friends who may be interested in the matter. Certainly, I answered, but perhaps you would have the goodness to let me have the name of the steamer and of the line by which he sailed, together with the date— I have no doubt that I should be able to get a letter through to him. My request seemed both to puzzle and to irritate my host. His great eyebrows came down over his eyes, and he tapped his fingers impatiently on the table. He looked up at last with the expression of one who has seen his adversary make a dangerous move at chess, and has decided how to meet it. "'Many people, Mr. Dodd,' said he, "'would take offence at your infernal pertinacity.' and would think that this insistence had reached the point of damned impertinence. You must put it down, sir, to my real love for your son. Exactly. I have already made every allowance upon that score. I must ask you, however, to drop these inquiries. 
every family has its own inner knowledge and its own motives which cannot always be made clear to outsiders however well-intentioned my wife is anxious to hear something of godfrey's past which you are in a position to tell her but i would ask you to let the present and the future alone such inquiries serve no useful purpose sir and place us in a delicate and difficult position so i came to a dead end mr holmes there was no getting past it i could only pretend to accept the situation and register a vow inwardly that i would never rest until my friend's fate had been cleared up it was a dull evening we dined quietly the three of us in a gloomy faded old room the lady questioned me eagerly about her son but the old man seemed morose and depressed i was so bored by the whole proceeding that i made an excuse as soon as i decently could and retired to my bedroom it was a large bare room on the ground floor as gloomy as the rest of the house but after a year of sleeping upon the veldt mr holmes one is not too particular about one's quarters i opened the curtains and looked out into the garden remarking that it was a fine night with a bright half-moon then i sat down by the roaring fire with the lamp on the table beside me and endeavoured to distract my mind with a novel i was interrupted however by rafe the old butler who came in with a fresh supply of coals i thought you might run short in the night-time sir it is bitter weather and these rooms are cold he hesitated before leaving the room and when i looked round he was standing facing me with a wistful look upon his wrinkled face beg your pardon sir but i could not help hearing what you said of young master godfrey at dinner you know sir that my wife nursed him and so i may say i am his foster father it's natural we should take an interest and you say he carried himself well sir there was no braver man in the regiment he pulled me out once from under the rifles of the boars or maybe i should not be here the old butler rubbed his skinny hands yes sir yes that is master godfrey all over he was always courageous there is not a tree in the park sir that he has not climbed nothing would stop him he was a fine boy and oh sir he was a fine man i sprang to my feet look here i cried you say he was you speak as if he were dead what is all this mystery what has become of godfrey emsworth i gripped the old man by the shoulder but he shrank away i don't know what you mean sir ask the master about master godfrey he knows it is not for me to interfere he was leaving the room but i held his arm listen i said you are going to answer one question before you leave if i have to hold you all night is godfrey dead he could not face my eyes he was like a man hypnotized the answer was dragged from his lips it was a terrible and unexpected one i wish to god he was he cried and tearing himself free he dashed from the room you will think mr holmes that i returned to my chair in no very happy state of mind the old man's words seemed to me to bear only one interpretation clearly my poor friend had become involved in some criminal or at the least disreputable transaction which touched the family honour that stern old man had sent his son away and hidden him from the world lest some scandal should come to light godfrey was a reckless fellow he was easily influenced by those around him no doubt he had fallen into bad hands and been misled to his ruin it was a piteous business if it was indeed so 
but even now it was my duty to hunt him out and see if I could aid him. I was anxiously pondering the matter when I looked up, and there was Godfrey Emsworth standing before me. My client had paused as one in deep emotion. Pray continue, I said. Your problem presents some very unusual features. He was outside the window, Mr. Holmes, with his face pressed against the glass. I have told you that I looked out at the night. When I did so, I left the curtains partly open. His figure was framed in this gap. The window came down to the ground, and I could see the whole length of it, but it was his face which held my gaze. He was deadly pale. Never have I seen a man so white. I reckon ghosts may look like that, but his eyes met mine, and they were the eyes of a living man. He sprang back when he saw that I was looking at him, and he vanished into the darkness. There was something shocking about the man, Mr. Holmes. It wasn't merely that ghastly face glimmering as white as cheese in the darkness. It was more subtle than that, something slinking, something furtive, something guilty, something very unlike the frank, manly lad that I had known. It left a feeling of horror in my mind. But when a man has been soldiering for a year or two with Brother Bore as a playmate, he keeps his nerve and acts quickly. Godfrey had hardly vanished before I was at the window. There was an awkward catch, and I was some little time before I could pull it up. Then I nipped through and ran down the garden path in the direction that I thought he might have taken. It was a long path, and the light was not very good, but it seemed to me something was moving ahead of me. I ran on and called his name, but it was no use. When I got to the end of the path, there were several others branching in different directions to various outhouses. I stood hesitating, and as I did so, I heard distinctly the sound of a closing door. It was not behind me, in the house, but ahead of me, somewhere in the darkness. That was enough, Mr. Holmes, to assure me that what I had seen was not a vision. Godfrey had run away from me, and he had shut a door behind him. Of that I was certain. There was nothing more I could do, and I spent an uneasy night turning the matter over in my mind and trying to find some theory which would cover the facts. Next day I found the Colonel rather more conciliatory, and as his wife remarked that there were some places of interest in the neighborhood, it gave me an opportunity to ask whether my presence for one more night would incommode them. A somewhat grudging acquiescence from the old man gave me a clear day in which to make my observations. I was already perfectly convinced that Godfrey was in hiding somewhere near, but where and why remained to be solved. The house was so large and so rambling that a regiment might be hid away in it, and no one the wiser. If the secret lay there, it was difficult for me to penetrate it. But the door which I had heard close was certainly not in the house. I must explore the garden and see what I could find. There was no difficulty in the way, for the old people were busy in their own fashion and left me to my own devices. There were several small outhouses, but at the end of the garden there was a detached building of some size, large enough for a gardener's or a gamekeeper's residence. Could this be the place whence the sound of that shutting door had come? I approached it in a careless fashion, as though I were strolling aimlessly round the grounds. As I did so, a small, brisk, bearded man in a black coat and bowler hat, not at all the gardener type, came out of the door. To my surprise, he locked it after him and put the key in his pocket. 
Then he looked at me with some surprise on his face. "'Are you a visitor here?' he asked. I explained that I was, and that I was a friend of Godfrey's. "'What a pity that he should be away on his travels, for he would have so liked to see me,' I continued. Uh, "'Quite so, exactly,' said he, with a rather guilty air. "'No doubt you will renew your visit at some more propitious time.' He passed on, but when I turned I observed that he was standing, watching me, half concealed by the laurels at the far end of the garden. I had a good look at the little house as I passed it, but the windows were heavily curtained, and so far as one could see it was empty. I might spoil my own game, and even be ordered off the premises if I were too audacious, for I was still conscious that I was being watched. Therefore I strolled back to the house, and waited for night before I went on with my inquiry. When all was dark and quiet, I slipped out of my window and made my way as silently as possible to the mysterious lodge. I have said that it was heavily curtained, but now I found that the windows were shuttered as well. Some light, however, was breaking through one of them, so I concentrated my attention upon this. I was in luck, for the curtain had not been quite closed, and there was a crack in the shutter so that I could see the inside of the room. It was a cheery place enough, a bright lamp and a blazing fire. Opposite to me was seated the little man whom I had seen in the morning. He was smoking a pipe and reading a paper. "'What paper?' I asked. My client seemed annoyed at the interruption of his narrative. "'Can it matter?' he asked. "'It is most essential.' I really took no notice. "'Possibly you observed whether it was a broad-leafed paper "'or of that smaller type which one associates with weeklies?' "'Now that you mention it, it was not large. "'It might have been the spectator. "'However, I had little thought to spare upon such details, "'for a second man was seated with his back to the window, "'and I could swear that the second man was Godfrey. "'I could not see his face, but I knew the familiar slope of his shoulders.' He was leaning upon his elbow in an attitude of great melancholy. His body turned towards the fire. I was hesitating as to what I should do, when there was a sharp tap on my shoulder, and there was Colonel Emsworth beside me. "'This way, sir,' said he, in a low voice. He walked in silence to the house, and I followed him into my own bedroom. He had picked up a timetable in the hall. "'There is a train to London at eight-thirty, said he. "'The trap will be at the door at eight. "'He was white with rage, and, indeed, I felt myself in so difficult a position "'that I could only stammer out a few incoherent apologies "'in which I tried to excuse myself by urging my anxiety for my friend. "'The matter will not bear discussion,' said he abruptly. "'You have made a most damnable intrusion into the privacy of our family.' You were here as a guest, and you have become a spy. I have nothing more to say, sir, save that I have no wish ever to see you again. At this I lost my temper, Mr. Holmes, and I spoke with some warmth. I have seen your son, and I am convinced that for some reason of your own you are concealing him from the world. I have no idea what your motives are in cutting him off in this fashion, but I am sure that he is no longer a free agent. I warn you, Colonel Emsworth, that until I am assured as to the safety and well-being of my friend, I shall never desist in my efforts to get to the bottom of the mystery, and I shall certainly not allow myself to be intimidated by anything which you may say or do. 
the old fellow looked diabolical and i really thought he was about to attack me i have said that he was a gaunt fierce old giant and though i am no weakling i might have been hard put to it to hold my own against him however after a long glare of rage he turned upon his heel and walked out of the room for my part i took the appointed train in the morning with the full intention of coming straight to you and asking for your advice and assistance at the appointment for which i had already written such was the problem which my visitor laid before me it presented as the astute reader will have perceived few difficulties in its solution for a very limited choice of alternatives must get to the root of the matter still elementary as it was there were points of interest and novelty about it which may excuse my placing it upon record i now proceeded using my familiar method of logical analysis to narrow down the possible solutions the servants i asked how many were in the house to the best of my belief there were only the old butler and his wife they seemed to live in the simplest fashion there was no servant then in the detached house none unless the little man with the beard acted as such he seemed however to be a quite superior person that seems very suggestive had you any indication that food was conveyed from the one house to the other now that you mention it i did see old rafe carrying a basket down the garden walk and going in the direction of this house the idea of food did not occur to me at the moment did you make any local inquiries yes i did i spoke to the station-master and also to the innkeeper in the village i simply asked if they knew anything of my old comrade godfrey emsworth both of them assured me that he had gone for a voyage round the world he had come home and then had almost at once started off again the story was evidently universally accepted you said nothing of your suspicions nothing that was very wise the matter should certainly be inquired into i will go back with you to duxbury old park to-day it happened that at the moment i was clearing up the case which my friend watson has described as that of the abbey school in which the duke of greyminster was so deeply involved i had also a commission from the sultan of turkey which called for immediate action as political consequences of the gravest kind might arise from its neglect therefore it was not until the beginning of the next week as my diary records that i was able to start forth on my mission to bedfordshire in company with mr james m dodd as we drove to euston we picked up a grave and taciturn gentleman of iron-grey aspect with whom i had made the necessary arrangements this is an old friend said i to dodd it is possible that his presence may be entirely unnecessary and on the other hand it may be essential it is not necessary at the present stage to go further into the matter the narratives of watson have accustomed the reader no doubt to the fact that i do not waste words or disclose my thoughts while the case is actually under consideration dodd seemed surprised but nothing more was said and the three of us continued our journey together in the train i asked dodd one more question which i wished our companion to hear you say that you saw your friend's face quite clearly at the window so clearly that you are sure of his identity i have no doubt about it whatever his nose was pressed against the glass the lamplight shone full upon him it could not have been someone resembling him no no it was he but you say he was changed only in colour 
His face was, how shall I describe it? It was of a fish-belly whiteness. It was bleached. Was it equally pale all over? I think not. It was his brow which I saw so clearly as it was pressed against the window. Did you call to him? I was too startled and horrified for the moment. Then I pursued him, as I have told you, but without result. My case was practically complete, and there was only one small incident needed to round it off. When, after a considerable drive, we arrived at the strange old rambling house which my client had described, it was Rafe, the elderly butler, who opened the door. I had requisitioned the carriage for the day, and had asked my elderly friend to remain within it unless we should summon him. Rafe, a little wrinkled old fellow, was in the conventional costume of black coat and pepper-and-salt trousers, with only one curious variant. He wore brown leather gloves, which at sight of us he instantly shuffled off, laying them down on the hall table as we passed in. I have, as my friend Watson may have remarked, an abnormally acute set of senses, and a faint but incisive scent was apparent. It seemed to centre on the hall table. I turned, placed my hat there, knocked it off, stooped to pick it up, and contrived to bring my nose within a foot of the gloves. Yes, it was undoubtedly from them that the curious tarry odour was oozing. I passed on into the study with my case complete. Alas, that I should have to show my hand so when I tell my own story. It was by concealing such links in the chain that Watson was enabled to produce his meretricious finales. Colonel Emsworth was not in his room, but he came quickly enough on receipt of Rafe's message. We heard his quick, heavy step in the passage. The door was flung open, and he rushed in with bristling beard and twisted features, as terrible an old man as ever I have seen. He held our cards in his hand, and he tore them up and stamped on the fragments. "'Have I not told you, you infernal busybody, that you are warned off the premises?' never dare to show your damned face here again if you enter again without my leave i shall be within my rights if i use violence i'll shoot you sir by god i will as to you sir turning upon me i extend the same warning to you i am familiar with your ignoble profession but you must take your reputed talents to some other field there is no opening for them here "'I cannot leave here,' said my client firmly, "'until I hear from Godfrey's own lips that he is under no restraint.' Our involuntary host rang the bell. "'Rafe,' he said, "'telephone down to the county police, "'and ask the inspector to send up two constables. "'Tell him there are burglars in the house.' "'One moment,' said I. "'You must be aware, Mr. Dodd, "'that Colonel Emsworth is within his rights.' and that we have no legal status within his house. On the other hand, he should recognize that your action is prompted entirely by solicitude for his son. I venture to hope that if I were allowed to have five minutes' conversation with Colonel Emsworth, I could certainly alter his view of the matter. I am not so easily altered, said the old soldier. Rafe, do what I have told you. What the devil are you waiting for? Ring up the police! "'Nothing of the sort,' I said, putting my back to the door. "'Any police interference would bring about the very catastrophe which you dread.' I took out my notebook and scribbled one word upon a loose sheet. "'That,' said I, as I handed it to Colonel Emsworth, "'is what has brought us here.' 
he stared at the writing with a face from which every expression save amazement had vanished how do you know he gasped sitting down heavily in his chair it is my business to know things that is my trade he sat in deep thought his gaunt hand tugging at his straggling beard then he made a gesture of resignation well if you wish to see godfrey you shall it is no doing of mine but you have forced my hand wraith tell mr godfrey and mr kent that in five minutes we shall be with them at the end of that time we passed down the garden path and found ourselves in front of the mystery house at the end a small bearded man stood at the door with a look of considerable astonishment on his face this is very sudden colonel emsworth said he this will disarrange all our plans i can't help it mr kent our hands have been forced can mr godfrey see us yes he is waiting inside he turned and led us into a large plainly furnished front room a man was standing with his back to the fire and at the sight of him my client sprang forward with outstretched hand why godfrey old man this is fine but the other waved him back don't touch me jimmy keep your distance yes you may well stare i don't quite look the smart lance corporal emsworth of b squadron do i his appearance was certainly extraordinary one could see that he had indeed been a handsome man with clear-cut features sunburned by an african sun but mottled in patches over this darker surface were curious whitish patches which had bleached his skin that's why i don't court visitors said he i don't mind you jimmy but i could have done without your friend i suppose there is some good reason for it but you have me at a disadvantage i wanted to be sure that all was well with you godfrey i saw you that night when you looked into my window and i could not let the matter rest till i had cleared things up old wraith told me you were there and i couldn't help taking a peep at you i hoped you would not have seen me and i had to run to my burrow when i heard the window go up but what in heaven's name is the matter well it's not a long story to tell said he lighting a cigarette you remember that morning fight at baffelspruit outside pretoria on the eastern railway line you heard i was hit yes i heard that but i never got particulars three of us got separated from the others it was very broken country you may remember there was simpson the fellow we called baldy simpson and anderson and i we were clearing brother boar but he lay low and got the three of us the other two were killed i got an elephant bullet through my shoulder i stuck on to my horse however and he galloped several miles before i fainted and rolled off the saddle when i came to myself it was nightfall and i raised myself up feeling very weak and ill to my surprise there was a house close beside me a fairly large house with a broad stoop and many windows it was deadly cold you remember the kind of numb cold which used to come at evening a deadly sickening sort of cold a very different from a crisp healthy frost well i was chilled to the bone and my only hope seemed to lie in reaching that house i staggered to my feet and dragged myself along hardly conscious of what i did i have a dim memory of slowly ascending the steps entering a wide-opened door passing into a large room which contained several beds and throwing myself down with a gasp of satisfaction upon one of them it was unmade but that troubled me not at all i threw the clothes over my shivering body 
and in a moment I was in a deep sleep. It was morning when I wakened, and it seemed to me that, instead of coming out into a world of sanity, I had emerged into some extraordinary nightmare. The African sun flooded through the big curtainless windows, and every detail of the great bare whitewashed dormitory stood out hard and clear. In front of me was standing a small dwarf-like man with a huge bulbous head, who was jabbering excitedly in Dutch, waving two horrible hands which looked to me like brown sponges. Behind him stood a group of people who seemed to be intensely amused by the situation, but a chill came over me as I looked at them. Not one of them was a normal human being. Every one was twisted or swollen or disfigured in some strange way. The laughter of these strange monstrosities was a dreadful thing to hear. It seemed that none of them could speak English, but the situation wanted clearing up, for the creature with the big head was growing furiously angry, and uttering wild beast cries he had laid his deformed hands upon me and was dragging me out of bed, regardless of the fresh flow of blood from my wound. The little monster was as strong as a bull, and I don't know what he might have done to me had not an elderly man who was clearly in authority been attracted to the room by the hubbub. He said a few stern words in Dutch, and my persecutor shrank away. Then he turned upon me, gazing at me in the utmost amazement. "'How in the world did you come here?' he asked in amazement. "'Wait a bit. I see that you are tired out, and that wounded shoulder of yours once looking after. I am a doctor, and I'll soon have you tied up. But, man alive, you are in far greater danger here than ever you were on the battlefield. You are in the leper hospital, and you have slept in a leper's bed.' Need I tell you more, Jimmy? It seems that, in view of the approaching battle, all these poor creatures had been evacuated the day before. Then, as the British advanced, they had been brought back by this, their medical superintendent, who assured me that though he believed he was immune to the disease, he would nonetheless never have dared to do what I had done. He put me in a private room, treated me kindly, and within a week or so I was removed to the general hospital of Pretoria. So there you have my tragedy. I hoped against hope, but it was not until I had reached home that the terrible signs which you see upon my face told me that I had not escaped. What was I to do? I was in this lonely house. We had two servants whom we could utterly trust. There was a house where I could live. Under pledge of secrecy, Mr. Kent, who was a surgeon, was prepared to stay with me. It seemed simple enough on those lines. The alternative was a dreadful one, segregation for life among strangers with never a hope of release. But absolute secrecy was necessary, or even in this quiet countryside there would have been an outcry, and I should have been dragged to my horrible doom. Even you, Jimmy, even you had to be kept in the dark. Why my father has relented I cannot imagine. Colonel Emsworth pointed to me. This is the gentleman who forced my hand. He unfolded the scrap of paper on which I had written the word leprosy. It seemed to me that if he knew so much as that, it was safer that he should know all. And so it was, said I. Who knows but good may come of it. I understand that only Mr. Kent has seen the patient. May I ask, sir, if you are an authority on such complaints? which are, I understand, tropical or semi-tropical in their nature. "'I have the ordinary knowledge of the educated medical man,' he observed with some stiffness. 
i have no doubt sir that you are fully competent but i am sure that you will agree that in such a case a second opinion is valuable you have avoided this i understand for fear that pressure should be put upon you to segregate the patient that is so said colonel emsworth i foresaw this situation i explained and i have brought with me a friend whose discretion may absolutely be trusted i was able once to do him a professional service and he is ready to advise as a friend rather than as a specialist his name is sir james saunders the prospect of an interview with lord roberts could not have excited greater wonder and pleasure in a raw subaltern than was now reflected upon the face of mr kent i shall indeed be proud he murmured then i will ask sir james to step this way he is at present in the carriage outside the door meanwhile colonel emsworth we may perhaps assemble in your study where i could give the necessary explanations and here it is that i miss my watson by cunning questions and ejaculations of wonder he could elevate my simple art which is but systematized common sense into a prodigy when i tell my own story i have no such aid and yet i will give my process of thought even as i gave it to my small audience which included godfrey's mother in the study of colonel emsworth that process said i starts upon the supposition that when you have eliminated all which is impossible then whatever remains however improbable must be the truth it may well be that several explanations remain in which case one tries test after test until one or other of them has a convincing amount of support we will now apply this principle to the case in point as it was first presented to me there were three possible explanations of the seclusion or incarceration of this gentleman in an outhouse of his father's mansion there was the explanation that he was in hiding for a crime or that he was mad and that they wished to avoid an asylum or that he had some disease which caused his segregation i could think of no other adequate solutions these then had to be sifted and balanced against each other the criminal solution would not bear inspection no unsolved crime had been reported from that district i was sure of that if there were some crime not yet discovered then clearly it would be to the interest of the family to get rid of the delinquent and send him abroad rather than keep him concealed at home i could see no explanation for such a line of conduct insanity was more plausible the presence of the second person in the outhouse suggested a keeper the fact that he locked the door when he came out strengthened the supposition and gave the idea of constraint on the other hand this constraint could not be severe or the young man could not have got loose and come down to have a look at his friend you will remember mr dodd that i felt round for points asking you for example about the paper which mr kent was reading had it been the lancet or the british medical journal it would have helped me it is not illegal however to keep a lunatic upon private premises so long as there is a qualified person in attendance and that the authorities have been duly notified why then all this desperate desire for secrecy once again i could not get the theory to fit the facts there remained the third possibility into which rare and unlikely as it was everything seemed to fit leprosy is not uncommon in south africa by some extraordinary chance this youth might have contracted it his people would be placed in a very dreadful position 
since they would desire to save him from segregation. Great secrecy would be needed to prevent rumors from getting about and subsequent interference by the authorities. A devoted medical man, if sufficiently paid, would easily be found to take charge of the sufferer. There would be no reason why the latter should not be allowed freedom after dark. Bleaching of the skin is a common result of the disease. The case was a strong one, so strong that I determined to act as if it were actually proved. When, on arriving here, I noticed that Rafe, who carries out the meals, had gloves which were impregnated with disinfectants, my last doubts were removed. A single word showed you, sir, that your secret was discovered, and if I wrote rather than said it, it was to prove to you that my discretion was to be trusted. I was finishing this little analysis of the case when the door was opened and the austere figure of the great dermatologist was ushered in but for once his sphinx-like features had relaxed, and there was a warm humanity in his eyes. He strode up to Colonel Emsworth and shook him by the hand. "'It is often my lot to bring ill tidings, and seldom good,' said he. "'This occasion is the more welcome. It is not leprosy.' "'What?' "'A well-marked case of pseudo-leprosy, or ichthyosis, a scale-like affection of the skin.' unsightly obstinate but possibly curable and certainly non-infective yes mr holmes the coincidence is a remarkable one but is it coincidence are there not subtle forces at work of which we know little are we assured that the apprehension from which this young man has no doubt suffered terribly since his exposure to its contagion may not produce a physical effect which simulates that which it fears at any rate, I pledge my professional reputation. But the lady has fainted. I think that Mr. Kent had better be with her until she recovers from this joyous shock. End of the Adventure of the Blanched Soldier Section 3 of The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Story three. The Adventure of the Mazarin Stone. It was pleasant to Dr. Watson to find himself once more in the untidy room of the first floor in Baker Street, which had been the starting point of so many remarkable adventures. He looked round him at the scientific charts upon the wall, the acid charred bench of chemicals, the violin case leaning in the corner, the coal scuttle, which contained of old the pipes and tobacco. Finally, his eyes came round to the fresh and smiling face of Billy, the young but very wise and tactful page, who had helped a little to fill up the gap of loneliness and isolation which surrounded the saturnine figure of the great detective. It all seems very unchanged, Billy. You don't change either. I hope the same can be said of him. Billy glanced with some solicitude at the closed door of the bedroom. I think he's in bed and asleep, he said. It was seven in the evening of a lovely summer's day, but Dr. Watson was sufficiently familiar with the irregularity of his old friend's hours to feel no surprise at the idea. That means a case, I suppose? Yes, sir. He is very hard at it just now. I'm frightened for his health. He gets paler and thinner, and he eats nothing. When will you be pleased to dine, Mr. Holmes? Mrs. Hudson asked. 
seven-thirty the day after to-morrow said he you know his way when he is keen on a case yes billy i know he's following someone yesterday he was out as a workman looking for a job to-day he was an old woman fairly took me in he did and i ought to know his ways by now billy pointed with a grin to a very baggy parasol which leaned against the sofa that's part of the old woman's outfit he said but what is it all about billy billy sank his voice as one who discusses great secrets of state i don't mind telling you sir but it should go no farther it's this case of the crown diamond what the hundred thousand pound burglary yes sir they must get it back sir why we had the prime minister and the home secretary both sitting on that very sofa mr holmes was very nice to them he soon put them at their ease and promised he would do all he could then there is lord cantlemere ah yes sir you know what that means he's a stiffen sir if i may say so i can get along with the prime minister and i've nothing against the home secretary who seemed a civil obliging sort of man but i can't stand his lordship neither can mr holmes sir you see he don't believe in mr holmes and he was against employing him he'd rather he failed and mr holmes knows it mr holmes always knows whatever there is to know well we'll hope he won't fail and that lord cantlemere will be confounded but i say billy what is that curtain for across the window mr holmes had it put up there three days ago we've got something funny behind it billy advanced and drew away the drapery which screened the alcove of the bow window dr watson could not restrain a cry of amazement there was a facsimile of his old friend dressing-gown and all the face turned three-quarters towards the window and downwards as though reading an invisible book while the body was sunk deep in an armchair billy detached the head and held it in the air we put it at different angles so that it may seem more lifelike i wouldn't dare touch it if the blind were not down but when it's up you can see this from across the way we used something of the sort once before before my time said billy he drew the window curtains apart and looked out into the street there are folk who watch us from over yonder i can see a fellow now at the window have a look for yourself watson had taken a step forward when the bedroom door opened and the long thin form of holmes emerged his face pale and drawn but his step and bearing as active as ever with a single spring he was at the window and had drawn the blind once more that will do billy said he you were in danger of your life then my boy and i can't do without you just yet well watson it is good to see you in your old quarters once again you come at a critical moment so i gather you can go billy that boy is a problem watson how far am i justified in allowing him to be in danger danger of what holmes a sudden death i'm expecting something this evening expecting what to be murdered watson no no you are joking holmes even my limited sense of humour could evolve a better joke than that but we may be comfortable in the meantime may we not is alcohol permitted the gasogene and cigars are in the old place let me see you once more in the customary armchair you have not i hope 
learned to despise my pipe and my lamentable tobacco. It has to take the place of food these days. But why not eat? Because the faculties become refined when you starve them. Why, surely, as a doctor, my dear Watson, you must admit that what your digestion gains in the way of blood supply is so much lost to the brain. I am a brain, Watson. The rest of me is mere appendix. Therefore it is the brain I must consider. But this danger, Holmes. Ah, yes. In case it should come off, it would perhaps be as well that you should burden your memory with the name and address of the murderer. You can give it to Scotland Yard with my love and a parting blessing. Silvius is the name. Count Negretto Silvius. Write it down, man. Write it down. 136 Moorside Gardens, N.W. Got it? Watson's honest face was twitching with anxiety. He knew only too well the immense risks taken by Holmes, and was well aware that what he said was more likely to be understatement than exaggeration. Watson was always the man of action, and he rose to the occasion. Count me in, Holmes. I have nothing to do for a day or two. Your morals don't improve, Watson. You have added fibbing to your other vices. You bear every sign of the busy medical man, with calls on him every hour. Not such important ones, but can't you have this fellow arrested? Yes, Watson, I could. That's what worries him so. But why don't you? Because I don't know where the diamond is. Ah, Billy told me, the missing crown jewel. Yes, the great yellow Mazarin stone. I've cast my net and I have my fish, but I have not got the stone. What is the use of taking them? We can make the world a better place by laying them by the heels, but that is not what I am out for. It's the stone I want. And is this Count Silvius one of your fish? Yes, and he's a shark. He bites. The other is Sam Merton, the boxer. Not a bad fellow, Sam, but the Count has used him. Sam's not a shark. He is a great big silly bull-headed gudgeon. But he is flopping about in my net all the same. Where is this Count Silvius? I've been at his very elbow all the morning. You've seen me as an old lady, Watson. I was never more convincing. He actually picked up my parasol for me once. By your leave, madame, said he half Italian, you know, and with the southern graces of manner, when in the mood, but a devil incarnate in the other mood. Life is full of whimsical happenings, Watson. It might have been tragedy. Well, perhaps it might. I followed him to old Strabenzi's workshop in the Minories. Strabenzi made the air-gun, a very pretty bit of work, as I understand, and I rather fancy it is in the opposite window at the present moment. Have you seen the dummy? Oh, of course, Billy showed it to you. Well, it may get a bullet through its beautiful head at any moment. Ah, Billy, what is it? The boy had reappeared in the room with a card upon a tray. Holmes glanced at it with raised eyebrows and an amused smile. The man himself. I had hardly expected this. Grasp the nettle, Watson, a man of nerve. Possibly you have heard of his reputation as a shooter of big game. It would indeed be a triumphant ending to his excellent sporting record if he added me to his bag. This is a proof that he feels my toe very close behind his heel. Send for the police. I probably shall, but not just yet. 
would you glance carefully out of the window watson and see if anyone is hanging about in the street watson looked warily round the edge of the curtain yes there is one rough fellow near the door that will be sam merton the faithful but rather fatuous sam where is this gentleman billy in the waiting-room sir show him up when i ring yes sir if i am not in the room show him in all the same yes sir watson waited until the door was closed and then he turned earnestly to his companion look here holmes this is simply impossible this is a desperate man who sticks at nothing he may have come to murder you i should not be surprised i insist upon staying with you you would be horribly in the way in his way no my dear fellow in my way well i can't possibly leave you yes you can watson and you will for you have never failed to play the game i am sure you will play it to the end this man has come for his own purpose but he may stay for mine holmes took out his notebook and scribbled a few lines take a cab to scotland yard and give this to ugall at the c i d come back with the police the fellow's arrest will follow i'll do that with joy before you return i may have just time enough to find out where the stone is he touched the bell i think we will go out through the bedroom the second exit is exceedingly useful i rather want to see my shark without his seeing me and i have as you will remember my own way of doing it it was therefore an empty room into which billy a minute later ushered count silvius the famous game-shot sportsman and man about town was a big swarthy fellow with a formidable dark moustache shading a cruel thin-lipped mouth and surmounted by a long curved nose like the beak of an eagle he was well dressed but his brilliant necktie shining pin and glittering rings were flamboyant in their effect as the door closed behind him he looked round him with fierce startled eyes like one who suspects a trap at every turn then he gave a violent start as he saw the impassive head and the collar of the dressing-gown which projected above the armchair in the window at first his expression was one of pure amazement then the light of a horrible hope gleamed in his dark murderous eyes he took one more glance round to see that there were no witnesses and then on tiptoe his thick stick half raised he approached the silent figure he was crouching for his final spring and blow when a cool sardonic voice greeted him from the open bedroom door don't break it count don't break it the assassin staggered back amazement in his convulsed face for an instant he half raised his loaded cane once more as if he would turn his violence from the effigy to the original but there was something in that steady grey eye and mocking smile which caused his hand to sink to his side it's a pretty little thing said holmes advancing towards the image de vernier the french modeller made it he is as good at waxworks as your friend straubenzi is at air-guns air-guns sir what do you mean put your hat and stick on the side-table thank you pray take a seat would you care to put your revolver out also oh very good if you have heard to sit upon it your visit is really most opportune for i wanted badly to have a few minutes chat with you the count scowled with heavy threatening eyebrows i too wished to have some words with you holmes that is why i am here i won't deny that i intended to assault you just now 
Holmes swung his leg on the edge of the table. I rather gathered that you had some idea of the sort in your head, said he. But why these personal attentions? Because you have gone out of your way to annoy me. Because you have put your creatures upon my track. My creatures? I assure you, no. Nonsense. I have had them followed. Two can play at that game, Holmes. It is a small point, Count Silvius, but perhaps you would kindly give me my prefix when you address me. You can understand that with my routine of work I should find myself on familiar terms with half the rogues' gallery, and you will agree that exceptions are invidious. Well, Mr. Holmes, then? Excellent. But I assure you, you are mistaken about my alleged agents. Count Silvius laughed contemptuously. Other people can observe as well as you. Yesterday there was an old sporting man. Today it was an elderly woman. They held me in view all day. Really, sir, you compliment me. Old Baron Dowson said, the night before he was hanged, that in my case what the law had gained the stage had lost. And now you give my little impersonations your kindly praise. It was you? You, yourself? Holmes shrugged his shoulders. You can see in the corner the parasol which you so politely handed to me in the minories before you began to suspect. If I had known, you might never have seen this humble abode again. I was well aware of it. We all have neglected opportunities to deplore. As it happens, you did not know, so here we are. The Count's knotted brows gathered more heavily over his menacing eyes. What you say only makes the matter worse. It was not your agents, but your play-acting, busybody self. You admit that you have dogged me. Why? Come now, Count. You used to shoot lions in Algeria. Well, but why? Why? The sport, the excitement, the danger. And no doubt to free the country from a pest. Exactly. My reasons in a nutshell. The Count sprang to his feet, and his hand involuntarily moved back to his hip pocket. Sit down, sir, sit down. There was another more practical reason. I want that yellow diamond. Count Silvius lay back in his chair with an evil smile. Upon my word, said he. You knew that I was after you for that. The real reason why you are here tonight is to find out how much I know about the matter, and how far my removal is absolutely essential. Well, I should say that from your point of view it is absolutely essential, for I know all about it, save only one thing, which you are about to tell me. Oh, indeed, and pray what is this missing fact? Where the crown diamond now is. The Count looked sharply at his companion. Oh, you want to know that, do you? How the devil should I be able to tell you where it is? You can, and you will. Indeed. You can't bluff me, Count Silvius. Holmes's eyes, as he gazed at him, contracted and lightened until they were like two menacing points of steel. You are absolute plate glass, I see to the very back of your mind. Then, of course, you see where the diamond is. Holmes clapped his hands with amusement, and then pointed a derisive finger. Then you do know. You have admitted it. I admit nothing. Now, Count, if you will be reasonable, we can do business. If not, you will get hurt. Count Silvius threw up his eyes to the ceiling. And you talk about bluff, said he. 
Holmes looked at him thoughtfully like a master chess player who meditates his crowning move. Then he threw open the table drawer and drew out a squat notebook. Do you know what I keep in this book? No, sir, I do not. You? Me? Yes, you, sir. You are all here, every action of your vile and dangerous life. Damn you, Holmes, cried the Count with blazing eyes. There are limits to my patience. It's all here, Count. The real facts as to the death of old Mrs. Harold, who left you the Blimer estate, which you so rapidly gambled away. You are dreaming. And the complete life history of Miss Minnie Warrender? Tut! You will make nothing of that. Plenty more here, Count. There is the robbery in the train de luxe to the Riviera on February 13th, 1892. Here is the forged check in the same year on the Crédit Lyonnais. No, you're wrong there. Then I am right on the others. Now, Count, you are a card player. When the other fellow has all the trumps, it saves time to throw down your hand. What does all this talk to do with a jewel of which you spoke? Gently, Count, restrain your eager mind. Let me get to the points in my own humdrum fashion. I have all this against you, but, above all, I have a clear case against both you and your fighting bully in the case of the Crown Diamond. Indeed. I have the cabman who took you to Whitehall, and the cabman who brought you away. I have the commissionaire who saw you near the case. I have Ikey Sanders who refused to cut it up for you. Ikey has peached, and the game is up. The veins stood out on the Count's forehead. His dark, hairy hands were clenched in a convulsion of restrained emotion. He tried to speak, but the words would not shape themselves. "'That's the hand I play from,' said Holmes. "'I put it all upon the table.' But one card is missing. It's the King of Diamonds. I don't know where the stone is. You never shall know. No. Now, be reasonable, Count. Consider the situation. You are going to be locked up for twenty years. So is Sam Merton. What good are you going to get from out of your diamond? None in the world. But if you hand it over, well, I'll compound a felony. We don't want you or Sam. We want the stone. Give that up, and so far as I am concerned, you can go free so long as you behave yourself in the future. If you make another slip, well, it will be the last. But this time my commission is to get the stone, not you. But if I refuse, why then, alas, it must be you and not the stone. Billy had appeared in answer to a ring. I think, Count, that it would be as well to have your friend Sam at this conference. After all, his interests should be represented. Billy, you will see a large and ugly gentleman outside the front door. Ask him to come up. If he won't come, sir? No violence, Billy. Don't be rough with him. If you tell him that Count Silvius wants him, he will certainly come. What are you going to do now? asked the Count as Billy disappeared. My friend Watson was with me just now. I told him that I had a shark and a gudgeon in my net. Now I am drawing the net, and up they come together. The Count had risen from his chair, and his hand was behind his back. Holmes held something half protruding from the pocket of his dressing gown. You won't die in your bed, Holmes. I have often had the same idea. Does it matter very much? After all, Count... Your own exit is more likely to be perpendicular than horizontal. 
Mark, these anticipations of the future are morbid. Why not give ourselves up to the unrestrained enjoyment of the present? A sudden wild beast light sprang up in the dark menacing eyes of the master criminal. Holmes's figure seemed to grow taller as he grew tense and ready. It is no use your fingering your revolver, my friend, he said in a quiet voice. You know perfectly well that you dare not use it even if I gave you time to draw it. Nasty, noisy things, revolvers, Count. Better to stick to air-guns. Ah, I think I hear the fairy footstep of your estimable partner. Good day, Mr. Merton. Rather dull in the street, is it not? The prize-fighter, a heavily built young man with a stupid, obstinate, slab-sided face, stood awkwardly at the door, looking about him with a puzzled expression. Holmes's debonair manner was a new experience, and though he vaguely felt that it was hostile, he did not know how to counter it. He turned to his more astute comrade for help. "'What's the game now, Count? What's this fellow want? What's up?' His voice was deep and raucous. The Count shrugged his shoulders, and it was Holmes who answered. "'If I may put it in a nutshell, Mr. Merton, I should say it was all up.' The boxer still addressed his remarks to his associate. "'Is this cove trying to be funny or what? I'm not in the funny mood myself.' "'No, I expect not,' said Holmes. "'I think I can promise you that you will feel even less humorous as the evening advances. "'Now, look here, Count Silvius. I'm a busy man, and I can't waste time. "'I'm going into that bedroom. Pray make yourselves quite at home in my absence. "'You can explain to your friend how the matter lies without the restraint of my presence. "'I shall try over the Hoffman-Barker roll upon my violin. "'In five minutes I shall return for your final answer.' you quite grasp the alternative do you not shall we take you or shall we have the stone holmes withdrew picking up his violin from the corner as he passed a few moments later the long-drawn wailing notes of that most haunting of tunes came faintly through the closed door of the bedroom what is it then asked merton anxiously as his companion turned to him does he know about the stone he knows a damned sight too much about it I'm not sure that he doesn't know all about it. Good Lord, the boxer's sallow face turned a shade whiter. Ikey Sanders has split on us. He has, has he? I'll do him down a thicken for that if I swing for it. That won't help us much. We've got to make up our minds what to do. Have a mo, said the boxer, looking suspiciously at the bedroom door. He's a leery cove that wants watching. I suppose he's not listening. How can he be listening with that music going? Mm, that's right. Maybe somebody's behind the curtain. Too many curtains in this room. As he looked round, he suddenly saw for the first time the effigy in the window, and stood staring and pointing to amazed for words. Tut, it's only a dummy, said the Count. A fake, is it? Well, strike me. Madame Tussaud, ain't it? It's the living spit of him, gown and all. But them curtains, Count. Oh, confound the curtains! We are wasting our time, and there is none too much. He can lag us over this stone. The deuce he can. But he'll let us slip if we only tell him where the swag is. What? Give it up? Give up a hundred thousand quid? It's one or the other. Merton scratched his short, cropped pate. He's alone in there. Let's do him in. If his light were out, we should have nothing to fear. The Count shook his head. 
he is armed and ready if we shot him we could hardly get away in a place like this besides it's likely enough that the police know whatever evidence he has got hello what was that there was a vague sound which seemed to come from the window both men sprang round but all was quiet save for the one strange figure seated in the chair the room was certainly empty something in the street said merton now look here governor you've got the brains surely you can think a way out of it if slugging is no use then it's up to you i fooled better men than he the count answered the stone is here in my secret pocket i take no chances leaving it about it can be out of england to-night and cut into four pieces in amsterdam before sunday he knows nothing of van sadar i thought van sadar was going next week he was but now he must get off by the next boat one or other of us must slip round with a stone to lime street and tell him but the false bottom ain't ready well he must take it as it is and chance it there's not a moment to lose again with the sense of danger which becomes an instinct with a sportsman he paused and looked hard at the window yes it was surely from the street that the faint sound had come as to holmes he continued we can fool him easily enough you see the damned fool won't arrest us if he can get the stone well we'll promise him the stone we'll put him on the wrong track about it and before he finds that it is the wrong track it will be in holland and we out of the country that sounds good to me cried sam merton with a grin you go on and tell the dutchman to get a move on him i'll see this sucker and fill him up with a bogus confession i'll tell him that the stone is in liverpool confound that whining music it gets on my nerves by the time he finds it isn't in liverpool it will be in quarters and we on the blue water come back here out of a line with that keyhole here's the stone i wonder you dare carry it where could i have it safer if we could take it out of whitehall someone else could surely take it out of my lodgings let's have a look at it count silvius cast a somewhat unflattering glance at his associate and disregarded the unwashed hand which was extended towards him what do you think i'm going to snatch it off you see here mister i'm getting a bit tired of your ways well well no offence sam we can't afford to quarrel come over to the window if you want to see the beauty properly now hold it to the light here thank you with a single spring holmes had leaped from the dummy's chair and had grasped the precious jewel he held it now in one hand while his other pointed a revolver at the count's head the two villains staggered back in utter amazement before they had recovered holmes had pressed the electric bell no violence gentlemen no violence i beg of you consider the furniture it must be very clear to you that your position is an impossible one the police are waiting below the count's bewilderment overmastered his rage and fear but how the deuce he gasped your surprise is very natural you are not aware that a second door from my bedroom leads behind that curtain i fancied that you must have heard me when i displaced the figure but luck was on my side it gave me a chance of listening to your racy conversation which would have been painfully constrained had you been aware of my presence the count gave a gesture of resignation we give you best homes i believe you are the devil himself not far from him at any rate holmes answered with a polite smile 
Sam Merton's slow intellect had only gradually appreciated the situation. Now, as the sound of heavy steps came from the stairs outside, he broke silence at last. "'A fair cop,' said he. "'But I say, what about that bloomin' fiddle? I hear it yet.' "'Tut-tut,' Holmes answered. "'You are perfectly right. Let it play. These modern gramophones are a remarkable invention.' There was an inrush of police. The handcuffs clicked, and their criminals were led to the waiting cab. Watson lingered with Holmes, congratulating him upon this fresh leaf added to his laurels. Once more their conversation was interrupted by the imperturbable Billy with his card-tray. "'Lord Candlemere, sir.' "'Show him up, Billy.' "'This is the eminent peer who represents the very highest interests,' said Holmes. "'He is an excellent and loyal person, but rather of the old regime. Shall we make him unbend? Dare we venture upon a slight liberty?' He knows, we may conjecture, nothing of what has occurred. The door opened to admit a thin, austere figure with a hatchet face and drooping mid-Victorian whiskers of a glossy blackness which hardly corresponded with the rounded shoulders and feeble gait. Holmes advanced affably and shook an unresponsive hand. "'How do you do, Lord Candlemere? It is chilly for the time of year, but rather warm indoors. May I take your overcoat?' "'No.' "'I thank you. I will not take it off.' Holmes laid his hand insistently upon the sleeve. "'Pray allow me. My friend Dr. Watson would assure you that these changes of temperature are most insidious.' His lordship shook himself free with some impatience. "'I am quite comfortable, sir. I have no need to stay. I have simply looked in to know how your self-appointed task was progressing. It is difficult, very difficult.' i feared that you would find it so there was a distinct sneer in the old courtier's words and manner every man finds his limitations mr holmes but at least it cures us of the weakness of self-satisfaction yes sir i have been much perplexed no doubt especially upon one point possibly you could help me upon it you apply for my advice rather late in the day I thought that you had your own all-sufficient methods. Still, I am ready to help you. You see, Lord Cantlemere, we can no doubt frame a case against the actual thieves. When you have caught them. Exactly. But the question is, how shall we proceed against the receiver? Is this not rather premature? It is as well to have our plans ready. Now what would you regard as final evidence against the receiver the actual possession of the stone you would arrest him upon that most undoubtedly holmes seldom laughed but he got as near it as his old friend watson could remember in that case my dear sir i shall be under the painful necessity of advising your arrest lord cantlemere was very angry some of the ancient fires flickered up into his sallow cheeks. "'You take a great liberty, Mr. Holmes. In fifty years of official life I cannot recall such a case. I am a busy man, sir, engaged upon important affairs, and I have no time or taste for foolish jokes. I may tell you frankly, sir, that I have never been a believer in your powers, and that I have always been of the opinion that the matter was far safer in the hands of the regular police force.' your conduct confirms all my conclusions i have the honour sir to wish you good evening 
Holmes had swiftly changed his position and was between the pier and the door. One moment, sir, said he. To actually go off with the Mazarin stone would be a more serious offence than to be found in temporary possession of it. Sir, this is intolerable. Let me pass. Put your hand in the right pocket of your overcoat. What do you mean, sir? Come, come, do what I ask. An instant later the amazed peer was standing, blinking and stammering, with the great yellow stone on his shaking palm. What? What? How is this, Mr. Holmes? Too bad, Lord Cantlemere, too bad, cried Holmes. My old friend here will tell you that I have an impish habit of practical joking. Also, that I can never resist a dramatic situation. I took the liberty, the very great liberty, I admit, of putting the stone into your pocket at the beginning of our interview. The old peer stared from the stone to the smiling face before him. Sir, I am bewildered. But, yes, it is indeed the Mazarin stone. We are greatly your debtors, Mr. Holmes. Your sense of humour may, as you admit, be somewhat perverted, and its exhibition remarkably untimely, but at least I withdraw any reflection I have made upon your amazing professional powers. But how? The case is but half finished. The details can wait. No doubt, Lord Cantlemere, your pleasure in telling of this successful result in the exalted circle to which you return will be some small atonement for my practical joke. Billy, will you show his lordship out and tell Mrs. Hudson that I should be glad if she would send up dinner for two as soon as possible. End of the Adventure of the Mazarin Stone